0: God is king of his universal cosmic kingdom. In today's Western culture, it can be popular to push back from any notion of hierarchy and even authority. The universe of which God is king, however, has a divine order, which is made up of a perfect universal law, freedoms and constraints, missions, and ultimately is governed by a heavenly throne. Before turning to chapter 3 of Genesis, we're going to look at three main facets of the Biblical worldview. First, God himself, his nature, his attributes, and how he's described the Trinity, what we call theology proper. Secondly, we'll turn to the order of the field, the canvas of all things, the dwelling place of God, how is the throne room in heaven described, a biblical view of the order of nature, the where, what, why of Sheol, Hades and the lake of fire that we tend to bundle together as hell and how God interacts with his creation. And then lastly, we'll look at the order of the players, looking at angelology, the order of mankind, and lastly, animals and plants and the hierarchy and ordained order uh, between them all. So, the order of God, the order of the field of play, and the order of the players. Now, we're going to broach these topics in two, possibly three sessions, and then we'll continue plowing through the narrative. But it's a good idea to firm up the pillars of our worldview. Who is it that we worship and is in control of all? What is the field of play that we are part of and how should we interact with the master controller and his players? Now if you're new here welcome we're in a series plowing our way through the grand narrative of the Bible investing time and thought uh, in developing a biblical worldview as we go hence the kind of worldview language of controller field and players. So in this session then we're going to. look at the order of Yahweh the order of God or what we call theology proper theology proper is what the revealed word of God has to say about who God is firstly the attributes of God to study God's attributes is to discover who God is his attributes speak of his character now, typically, Christians connect God with the attribute of love, but then put aside his attributes of wrath, jealousy, or perhaps his immutability. If you pick and mix his attributes, you form a God in your own image. Now, we could think of this as purely an academic exercise, but no, if, we are, if we're called to image God and our character is the only thing that matters, then we ought to learn about his attributes in order to reflect them. Does that make sense? Now, to build a biblical worldview of God's character, we must search the scriptures systematically to discover his many attributes. Now, God's attributes are broadly categorized in two. Firstly, uh, the incommunicable attributes of God, those less shared by us. So, for example, God's eternity, his unchangeableness, his omnipresence and so forth. And then secondly, the communicable attributes of God, those we share to some degree with God. So, uh, for example, love, mercy, justice, etc. For accuracy and efficiency, we're going to rely on Wayne Grudem's definitions and kind of general format of God's attributes. And there's no point in trying to be clever and coming up with our own definitions. So let's lean on well-seasoned definitions and classifications. God is self existent. God is totally independent. The world and its fullness are his. He owes no one is in need of nothing including his own creation and yet takes great delight in it and our praise and glorification of him now those who are called by his name are created for his glory jesus revealed that before the world existed he shared the glory with the father jesus continued that love existed between him and the father before the foundation of the world. God necessarily exists as an incomparable being. Creation was desired, not necessary. Far from insignificant, God created man determining our meaningfulness to him. God's self-existence or independence is defined as follows. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything yet we and the rest of creation glorify him and bring him joy god is unchanging god's unchangeableness or immutability is defined as god is unchanging in his being perfections purposes and promises yet god does act and feel emotions and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations Consider the following scripture. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. God's being that includes his perfect character and therefore his purposes do not change. Once he is determined or or promised that something will happen, it will. Through Malachi, he declares, For I, the Lord, Yahweh, do not change. So does God ever change his mind? What about the places in scripture where God relents from the course of judgment? Well, simply put... God responds differently to different situations but nevertheless remains unchanging in his being and purposes. Now this understanding provides hope for mankind that when a person repents from wicked ways the Lord responds mercifully to our change. His unchangeableness also means that we have a being to put faith hope and trust in an ultimate authority worthy to receive glory and honor and power. God is passionate and feels emotions that include everlasting love, jealousy, hate, grief, pity, compassion, laughter. Our emotions and passions reflect his, except that our our feelings frequently are distorted by sin. God's emotions are righteous, whereas ours can align with evil. God is eternal and timeless. Moses wrote in the Psalms, Before the mountains were brought forth or you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Looking forward to the establishment of the kingdom, David wrote, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Jude writes, To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is timeless in that he existed from eternity past and will forever exist. He declares, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, meaning the beginning and the end. God is an immaterial spirit who existed before he created material matter and therefore time and space as we understand it. God is eternally independent of these three. He sees every particle of existence of all of history with the same clarity as if it had just happened. Now, that does not mean that God acts before time and lets the world kind of unfold without interaction. It also does not mean that God sees all history playing at the same time. God determines ahead of time, but he sees events in time and acts in time. The Bible is a record of his acts predictions and fulfillment uh, past and future as he acts in time he created time space and matter he is a ruler over it and therefore his purposes are accomplished through them as history plays out we can define his attributes of eternity or eternality as God has no beginning, end or succession of moments in his own being and he sees all time equally equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. God is omnipresent. As Lord over space and who is not contained by space, God is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different spaces. David expresses God's omnipresence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It is not that God is so big that the universe cannot take all of him, but rather that his being is distinct from and is not to be thought of in spatial terms, even if he chooses to present himself in a specific form. Jeremiah 23 reads, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. All thought, word, and deed is seen by God, which is why Jesus would say, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. God is present in some places to judge while in other places to bless while sustaining all. To say then that going to hell, Sheol, the present reality, uh, to say that going there is to be separated from God is not quite true. God God is present, but acts differently in hell, in Sheol, than in heaven. We're going to tackle the subject of hell in in the next session. Now, when the Bible speaks of God's presence, it's usually in reference to God's specific blessing, making himself known to his people. When God is described as distant, um, his presence remains throughout the universe, but it means his specific blessing is removed from a people. God is unified. God is not, for example, partly love and partly light. Any attribute of God is true of all his being. The Bible communicates different attributes of God so that we can begin to grasp God's character. This means that God responds the same throughout history and that the character of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit are unified. God does not act differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament or any other kind of supposed dispensations of time. It's that God reveals different aspects of his character depending on the situation. His character is consistent and we should We should caution against overemphasizing any one of his attributes. None is more important than the other, and it's his whole being that we should focus on. We can define his unity as God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times god's communicable attributes these are commonly categorized attributes that are somewhat reflected by us image bearers let's group together the attributes describing god's being his spirituality firstly god is spirit spirit is not material energy or thought but a real existence not associated with space it is why we are not to worship an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below the creator is not to be compared to his natural creation his spirit is limitless is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses and is more excellent than any other kind of existence god has given man a spirit to reflect and become one spirit with the lord in prayer in worship Uh, the holy spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god it says in romans 8 and in death man's dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it his invisibility secondly because he is spirit he is invisible now having said that God graciously allows his creation to see manifestations of him in heaven and on earth John tells us that no one has ever seen God the only God the son who is at the father's side he has made him known God has appeared in what we call a theophany on numerous occasions. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend in the form of a pillar of a cloud. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. He appeared through different manifestations to the patriarchs, the prophets, the people of Israel and others. Jesus was the greatest manifestation made visible through flesh. He said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We are all uh, promised that, that one day we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is face to face. Now, we may never see the the full essence of God, but we will one day truly see the vividness of God, and in doing so, we shall be like him, according to the original order of the image. We can define it then as God's invisibility means that God's total essence, all his spiritual being, will never be able to be seen by us, yet God still shows himself to us through visible, created things. God's mental attributes. God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He knows himself fully, has perfect knowledge. He knows everything in existence and every possibility. He does not have to reason or calculate nor reach a conclusion. He never learns nor forgets. His knowledge, therefore, does not increase, meaning he has known everything of history for eternity. God is infinitely wise. Grudem defines God's wisdom. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Now, when we question God's acts or lack thereof, we are reminded by Paul that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. His wise decision meant the creation of all things and his wise decisions meant continue to determine the best ways to get the best results from his perspective if we seek wisdom from other sources we do with the knowledge that he is the only wise god proverbs nine ten connects worship with wisdom the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is insight David Finkbeiner comments, those who worship and know the Lord submit to his authority and consequently grow in wisdom and righteousness. James said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him reading the scriptures makes one wise and a nation who obeys his word will be recognized by others who will say surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people that was the mission given to Israel because we will never fully receive the wisdom that the Lord has there are times where we must trust and put our faith in his ways and means God is faithful and true. Firstly, the God of the Bible is the true God. Jeremiah says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In his first epistle, John writes, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Secondly, God is the final standard of truth. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. It is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, as a God of faithfulness, he cannot break his promises. His words are true, and so we can rely on him to accomplish all that he has said he will. Paul exhorts us to reflect this attribute of our Creator do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator we are to imitate his truthfulness and be one who hates falsehood for this reason the ninth commandment reads you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor God's moral attributes, his goodness. God is the final standard of good, worthy of approval by himself. It is why after God saw everything that he had made, he declared his own work as very good. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. God is the source of all good in the world. On occasion, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. The prophet Nahum reminds us that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Jesus said of those who walk uprightly, the Father gives good things to those who ask him. In reflecting his goodness, we are to do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. His goodness includes his mercy and grace. Grudem defines both. God's mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress, and God's grace means God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Salvation is by the grace of God through faith. It is because of his goodness that although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus god's love god's love means that god eternally gives of himself to others we're familiar with john's words aren't we god is love this attribute is true within the trinity from all eternity god reveals that god didn't wait on us to love In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul adds, God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's purpose is to give himself to humanity to bring about blessing and goodness, and we imitate this attribute, By loving God in return and loving people, we therefore demonstrate our love for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We are warned, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God's holiness. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. He calls himself the Holy One on numerous occasions. We are to imitate his holiness. We are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He said to Israel, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Corporately, too, the church is to become holy and without blemish, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Eventually, when Jesus returns, all things will become holy. Check out Zechariah 14. God's righteousness. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. All his ways are justice, just and upright is he. Psalm 89 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness and justice are connected but distinct in the English language. However, in both the, the Biblical Hebrew and the Greek, there is one word group behind the English words for righteousness and justice. It is right that God treats people based on what they deserve and therefore his righteousness requires him to punish sin. The Creator does not need to explain his actions to his creatures. When we observe terrible acts of sin man often asks where is god right That God does not punish immediately does not mean he will not punish. He will by no means clear the guilty, but in his patience, he gives man a chance to repent. Apart from any kind of immediate consequences, punishment eventually comes to the sinner. The good news is that in time, and for all those who have faith in him, Jesus took the punishment on the cross to show God's righteousness we reflect god's righteousness when we conform to god's character two errors that kind of before christians is firstly to kind of neglect the call to seek justice in society we should do and secondly to adopt a kind of secular secular version of justice right and on the first count god does not reward passivity And on the second, man introduces distortions into their practices and lives, ironically drifting away from God's righteousness. We see large portions of the church falling for secular social justice movements today. Knowing God is righteous and sovereign over all means that justice will be done. It will be done. God is jealous. Moses wrote, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honour. Now jealousy is sometimes thought of as a bad thing, but distinct from envy, which, is, which desires what is not yours, jealousy is being protective over what is rightfully yours. So for this reason, he says to the Israelites, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. When man is jealous, it is not always wrong, but our actions often present pride seeking one's own honour. It is helpful to remember that we belong to God, and only He is worthy of all praise, honour and glory. God's wrath The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, with great kindness meant to lead you to repentance. But God's wrath is his response to anything that is opposed to God's moral character. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. God's wrath is seen throughout the Old Testament in response to those who do not follow his will, particularly idolatry. Because of Israel's obstinance, God said to Moses, "'Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, "'and I may consume them.'" The prophets wrote of a future day of wrath. The New Testament affirms the message of the prophets, saying, "'The wrath of God is coming.'" Those who do not put their faith in Jesus, the Lamb, will say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Romans 2.5 says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath, against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The good news is that Jesus took the wrath upon himself. Christ died for the ungodly. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's Romans 5. And John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. While Christians will suffer consequences of their own sin, and God will discipline us for our own good, we should not fear the wrath of God, because we are no longer children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians 2. As Paul said, "...for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." When Jesus returns, the church body will be caught up in the clouds, commonly referred to as the rapture. And it's at that point that we will be delivered from the wrath that will be poured out on the earth before it is is renewed. And now this doesn't mean that we don't go through the tribulation, after the tribulation, but before the wrath of God. His wrath should should make us thankful for his patience and that he will punish and, and it should motivate us to evangelism. When we kind of feel, feel hatred towards evil, we reflect somewhat this attribute of God. However, we are warned to put away anger, wrath, and never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Attributes of purpose, God's will, including freedom. God's choices are the reason for everything that happens. God's will is the attributes of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. God has total freedom, unconstrained, and dictated by no one, and he does all that he pleases. God created all things, and by his will, they existed and were created. Human rulers are determined by God's will. Paul tells us that God chose us. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything about the events surrounding Jesus' death were determined by his will. Following in his footsteps, for many Christians, our suffering is his perfect will. Aspects of God's will include his secret will and revealed will. Consider the following verse. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." Revealed will is what God has commanded that we do or not do, sometimes referred to as God's will of precept or will of command. His secret will are those things hidden from us that God governs the universe. So, for example, the day or hour of Jesus' return, we don't find out until they happen. Biblical prophecies by nature are revealed will, but the details of which are secret secret will until it takes place this aspect of his secret will uh, can be referred to as God's will of decree God chooses to blind or hide things from some while revealing them to others speaking of gospel truths, Jesus said the father in heaven had hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children in delegating authority and freedom however he allows things to take place that he does not directly cause or approve of the outcome the evil things happen does not mean that he wills them he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but he can use evil for his good purposes if we sin he did not will it Right. We are responsible for our own sin and God's will remains intact. Both truths are affirmed, but in his secret will is not understood until the age to come. In his image, we reflect his freedom of choice, limited as ours is. We should Guard against self-assurance, submitting our worldly plans to God's undisclosed will. And in his loving kindness and plans of restoration, again, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. God's totally free will, working in a way consistent with his character, was the final reason he chose to create the world and to save sinners and thereby bring glory to himself. God's omnipotence, including sovereignty. Our omnipotent, meaning all-powerful God, is king of the universe. We read, He is God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. Nothing bypasses the sovereign filter of God. Not a wave moves, a hair flicker, a death occur, a color change, a plant grow without at very least, permission of god his eye is on every particle in existence and nothing in all creation is hidden from god's sight everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account king david's prayer speaks of god's universal sovereignty Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. We do well to hear the words of the prophet Micah hear you peoples all of you listen earth and all who live in it that the sovereign lord may bear witness against you the lord from his holy temple john piper says that god's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do no one can hinder god and no one can say that he does not have the right to do whatever he wishes as part of his sovereignty grudem defines god's omnipotence God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. God's uh, providence, uh, which is about how he relates to his creation to accomplish his will, is something that we will look at soon enough. God is not limited in power. The Lord said to Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? God said to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Jeremiah said to God, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Speaking about the rich entering the kingdom, Jesus said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Paul said God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus says he is the one with all might. He said, I am the almighty. There are some things though that God cannot do. Although God's power is infinite, his use of that power is qualified by his other attributes. He cannot go against his own character. For example, God cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. Creation reveals his power, wisdom, and understanding. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. When you look to the skies above, when you see a cat climb a tree, when you study the physics of the universe, the complexity of human life, one cannot deny the infinite power, skill, wisdom of God. It should fill us with with a fear and an awe of our creator we noted in genesis 1 god named the day the night the earth the seas and the heavens and naming expresses the authority of the one who calls and the receiving of the name or title is an act of submission the almighty creator is therefore worthy of worship by his creation from the earth to the heavenly places Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Man reflects God's spiritual, physical persuasive authoritative and so forth power and as we do so we should endeavor to reflect his character summary attributes god's perfection god's perfection means that god completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him we just read from deuteronomy the rock his work is perfect from the psalms This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Jesus exhorts us to reflect his perfection. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's blessedness. God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. Paul wrote to Timothy, Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Just as God takes pleasure in things that reflect his own excellence, we imitate God's blessedness when we find happiness in that which is pleasing to God. God's beauty. God's beauty is that attribute of God, whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Grudem distinguishes beauty from perfection, saying that perfection means he lacks nothing desirable, whereas beauty affirms he possesses everything desirable. Two ways of affirming the same truth. Psalm 73 says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. David longed to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When our conduct reflects the character of Christ, his beauty is found in us. One of my favorite passages includes, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. In summary of God's attributes then, by by naming and defining the full array of God's attributes, we paint a truer picture of who God is and the image that we are called to bear. We don't like it when someone only ever speaks of one side about us, do we? Only kind of referring to you as being jealous or angry, right? Why would we do that with God? If we only ever single out God's love, you paint a hippie God. Or if you only focus on his wrath, you paint a mad, bad God. And I I witness people create a God from, from their kind of version of Jesus in the New Testament. They say things like, just look to Jesus. View all of Scripture through His eyes, and really, what they what they always mean is is their version of Jesus in the New Testament. But you can't apply our passover lamb of first corinthians 5 to your life and ignore the wrath of the lamb in revelation 6. jesus is not a, a pick and mix bag we need we need the blend of all of his attributes which means to study all of his word no attribute is more important than any other each attribute qualifies every other God's works can can highlight some attributes more than others. So uh, his wrath is obvious in his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, his goodness in the gift of his son unto death and so forth. But all of his attributes can be seen to some degree in any of his acts of redemption. Michael Brown wrote, At one and the same time, God is unspeakably holy and indescribably merciful, terrifying in wrath and overwhelming in love. That's our God. Amen. God's attributes means he is a personal God. So let's turn to the names of God. The various names of God are a way of revealing the identity and essence of God. In Genesis 2, we read it was Yahweh Elohim, often rendered Lord God, who made the earth and the heavens. The only proper name of God written in four Hebrew letters, remember it doesn't contain vowels, correspond to the English letters YHWH or YHVH. It has been pronounced Jehovah, or perhaps more accurately, Yahweh. Orthodox Jews today. Refused to speak aloud the name Yahweh in fear of mispronunciation which in their eyes would be blasphemous so instead they use Adonai or an alternative Um, Adonai is a royal title meaning lord or master revealing his name to man tells us that he's a personal god that we can know he was not given the name rather he is the name Adonai is typically translated Lord with just the first letter in capitals and then when we see Lord written in all caps this is a reference to Yahweh. God is a translation of the Hebrew equivalent such as Elohim, Uh, sometimes When I copy a passage and I put it on the screen, it doesn't copy the capitals of of O-R-D, of Lord, if it's Yahweh. And then I may forget to edit it. So if you're unsure if the Hebrew word is, is Yahweh or Adonai, then please do check yourself. God identified himself to Moses as, I am who I am. He told Moses to tell the Israelites that I am sent him. In this context, I am is the definite statement of God's incommunicable attributes such as his self-existence, his unchangeableness, eternity, as well as his omnipotence, will and so forth. Jesus identifies himself as the great I am in saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Other names include El Eloah, God Mighty, Strong, Prominent, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Elyon, Most High, El Gibor, Mighty God, Or you might know as Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner, Yahweh Makadesh, the Lord who sanctifies, makes holy, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace, Yahweh Zidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, Yahweh Rohi, the Lord our shepherd, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there, Yahweh Sabayoth, The Lord of Hosts, El Roy, God of Seeing, El Olam, Everlasting God, El Elohe, Yisrael, God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the Fear of Isaac, the Mighty One of Jacob, and so forth. These names tell us that he is the Most High, Lord of Lords, the all-powerful warrior, and yet our kind shepherd and healer who sees us even when we think he's turned his face from us. He's the provider, the one who gives righteousness peace the one who sanctifies and makes holy the banner of victory and the Lord will be where he sets to plant his name and glory follows his presence he's the Lord of all hosts both heaven and on earth angels and of men Jews and Gentiles of rich and poor master and slave and his name is bound to the patriarchs and the nation of Israel In fact, he has revealed himself over 300 times as the God of Israel, including variants such as the the God of Abraham, the God of your fathers, etc. Harrigan says, No name is more prominent and central to the revelation of his nature and character than Lord God Israel. I worship the God of Israel. Do you? God is knowable. From the creation accounts and the days of unsullied fellowship that followed, we learned that man can know God in person. But what about those of us today who have never seen God? Well, Grudem surmises, first, all people have an inner sense of God. Second, we believe the evidence found in Scripture and in nature. The Spirit of God, breathed into man, provides an inner conscience that knows he is created and therefore has a creator. The Bible explains why there is something rather than nothing. Life, beauty, art, music, love, humour, consciousness. The scriptures communicate a God who deeply cares for his creation and interacts with us as a person and we can relate to him as persons. It was created for everlasting purpose, with him as the everlasting personal king. The God who created all and is master over all values us and wants to commune with us. We are precious in his sight. The Bible tells us that God can choose to love us, delight in us, display his power and glory to us, speak to us, and in return, we can obey him, uh, display gratitude towards him, pray to him, and worship him. To convey his profound love and desire to commune with man, God speaks of his people, uh, Israel, as his children. And likewise, all believers are referred to as his sons and daughters. Paul says that creation itself points to the Creator, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. David too said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaims his handiwork. Paul continues in Romans 1 that although Gentiles knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man can therefore choose to harden his heart towards God and live in darkness or soften his heart and live in the light of truth. Hamilton says God reveals himself to his people in a medium with which they can identify and which they can comprehend. The creation account portrays a God who speaks, who evaluates, who deliberates, who forms, who animates, who regulates. We can see him in those things. God preserved the weekly pattern, for example, today so that we can identify with the creation account. Now, knowing God has nothing to do with intelligence or profound thinking for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them rather it is the fool who says in his heart there is no god i once sat in a biblical discussion group and this one person expressed their deep family hurts and there was this kind of moment of silence where no one quite knew what to say but then this one young man said this kind of most profound thing that touched everybody particularly the hurting person and I looked down and I noticed his bible was all beat up like he read that book but the point is is that this young man had a full-time carer because he had learning difficulties and I don't know the correct terminology but someone once said oh he's not all there but let me tell you the spirit was all there working in him and through him like he knew yahweh elohim it is the love of sin that causes man to to blind himself with pseudo rationale alternatively a love of god yields knowledge of our loving heavenly father the knowledge of the son of god and we've said the holy spirit bears witness with our spirit belief in god It's not blind, but it's based on overwhelming evidence from both God's works, creation, and his word, scripture. We cannot fully understand God or any one of his attributes comprehensively. David says, his greatness is unsearchable and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Paul writes, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Though our knowledge is limited, we can truly know God. It means we continue to delight in the knowledge of God and discoveries of who he is, his ways, his works and word. To be a Christian is to have a personal relationship with God the Father, through the relationship with the Son, by the relationship of the Spirit. He hears us through prayer and praise. God speaks primarily through the scriptures and he dwells in us and with us. The order of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is central to the Christian faith. It can be defined as follows. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God and there is one God. It can be helpful to view the doctrine in three parts. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one one god following the pattern of progressive revelation the trinity is implied in the old testament and revealed more so in the new testament first up the plurality of god the first verse of the bible reads in the beginning god Elohim created the heavens and the earth. According to Arnold Frutenbaum, the reference to Elohim is a plural noun having the masculine plural ending im, i, m. Eloah is the singular noun for God, which is also employed in the Old Testament. The singular noun for God occurs 250 times, but Elohim, the plural noun, is used 10 times that. Why not always make use of the singular if the Godhead is not plural in some form? Elohim can be followed by a singular verb, such as God created Elohim bara, like in Genesis 1-1, but our proposition is that that the Bible describes one God of three persons and therefore we would expect a general pattern of plural noun followed by a singular verb. Frutenbaum provides examples where Elohim is followed by a plural verb. Genesis 20, 13, and when God, Elohim, caused me to wander, it can be literally translated, they caused me to wander. Genesis 35, 7, because it was there that God, Elohim, revealed himself. Literally, they they revealed or they appeared to him. 2 Samuel 7, 23, God, Elohim, went to redeem. Literally, they went to redeem. Psalm fifty-seven, eleven. Surely there is a God, Elohim, who judges. Literally, they judge. Plural pronouns. We saw the use of plural pronouns obvious in the English translations in Genesis one twenty-six. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let us in our after our." Angels were not in the process of creation, and man was not made in their image, so it cannot refer to them. It refers to the plurality of persons within the Godhead. There's more. Then the Lord God Yahweh Elohim said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil." Genesis three twenty-two. And the Lord Yahweh said, "Come, let." us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech genesis eleven six and 7. then we have an interesting construction of a verse in isaiah 6 and i heard the voice of the lord adonai saying whom shall i send and who will go for us There is a use of I, which is singular, and then us, which is plural, which kind of sounds contradictory unless you understand, as Christians do, that there is plurality in unity. One God, three persons. I'm glad this can be confirmed by scholars, but the English translations are are good, and you can see it as clear as day. Plural descriptions. Where researching the Hebrew can help is taking a look at the nouns and adjectives. Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember also your creator, can be literally translated creators. Psalm 1492. Let Israel be glad in his maker, literally makers. Joshua 24.19, holy God, literally holy gods or holy persons of God. Isaiah 54.5, for your maker is your husband, literally is makers, plural, husbands, plural. More than one person of God is seen in the same passage. Look at this verse that reveals two persons in relationship called Elohim. Your throne, O God, Elohim, is for ever and ever. The sceptre of your kingdom is a sceptre of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, Elohim, your God, Elohim, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The first instance of the person God Elohim is being anointed by the second instance of the person God Elohim. We understand it as God the Father anointing God the Son to receive his everlasting throne. And Hebrews 1.8 applies the anointed God as Christ Jesus. The plurality of persons is there in the passage. In Psalm 110, David refers to two distinct persons of God and Jesus went on to imply it is speaking of him and the Father. Take also Hosea 1. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord, Yahweh, their God, Elohim. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. Bear in mind, this is God speaking. So the person of God will save them by another person of God, Yahweh, their Elohim. We also see the name of God applied to two different persons. Then the Lord, Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord, Yahweh, out of heaven. The first mention in this verse is a person of Yahweh who must be in close proximity to the earth is reigning judgment from the second mention of the person Yahweh who is in heaven. We understand as the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus, who ordered the judgment which comes from the Father in heaven. You can't just have your version of a New Testament Jesus. You must accept the Jesus who judges with fire and sulfur. Again, take Zechariah 2. For thus said the Lord, Yahweh, of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord, Yahweh, of hosts, has sent me. Did you catch that? Yahweh being sent by Yahweh for a specific purpose. So let's identify the Father, Son and Spirit. Only three distinct personalities are identified in scripture as divine. The first is the most common reference as Lord, Yahweh, the Father, the first person of the Trinity. The second is the Angel of Yahweh, we recognise as the Son, the second person of the Trinity, frequently translated the Angel of the Lord, The angel of Yahweh is distinct from all other created beings. Um, Hebrew for angel is malak, meaning messenger. So the second person of the Trinity is described as Yahweh and a special messenger of Yahweh. In Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord is the one who speaks to Hagar. And And then in verse 13, this same angel of Yahweh is yahweh so she called the name of the lord yahweh who spoke to her you are a god of seeing exodus 23 houses an interesting passage behold i send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that i have prepared pay careful attention to him and obey his voice do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him This is not a typical angel. This angel sent by God is able to pardon sin, which only God can do. Yet he can because God's name, Yahweh, is in him. Yahweh is saying the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, so pay special attention to him. The context of any given passage should reveal whether it is speaking of a typical created angel or the the second person of the Trinity. The third distinct person is Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God, who makes an appearance in just the second verse of Scripture. We saw the the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. The New Testament calls the third person the Holy Spirit. Now, some falsely teach that the Holy Spirit is the power of God, but not a person. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit in a way that is personal and relational. So, for example the holy spirit teaches and reminds in john 14 and 1 corinthians 2 is referred to as the counselor or comforter in john 14 15 and 16. he speaks in acts 8 and 13. he makes decisions in acts 15. he feels emotion such as grief in ephesians 4 and outrage Hebrews 10. He can be lied to, Acts 5. He can forbid speech or prevent action, Acts 16. He searches everything and comprehends the thoughts of God, uh, 1 Corinthians 2. He apportions spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, he helps, intercedes, and has a mind. Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, he bears witness about the Son of God. John 15, he glorifies the Son. John 16, clearly this cannot be an emanation of God, but rather the third person of the Godhead furthermore we observe uh, the spirit's relationship with the father and son masculine pronouns are used for the holy spirit and finally the attribute of power is not the same as the holy spirit the father is clearly fully god in the old testament Uh, the son of god is fully god in the old testament and more clearly seen in the new testament Um, as well as other passages mentioned the holy spirit is counted equally as fully god From the scriptures we see three distinct persons who are God, the Lord Yahweh, Father, the Angel of Yahweh, the Son, who took on flesh in the New Testament, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We see all three persons in the same passage. In Isaiah 48, one of the persons of God is speaking, saying, "'Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. And then a few verses later in the same passage he says, and now the Lord God has sent me, and his spirit. This is the Son of God declaring that he called Israel. He was the agent of creation. He was sent by Yahweh, and so too his Holy Spirit. Three distinguishable persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit in the same sentence. In Isaiah 63, we see the three persons again in the same passage. In verse 7, we read of the steadfast love of the Lord Yahweh. And then in verse 9, the angel of Yahweh, of his presence, saved them. And then verse 10 and 14, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. The Father, Son, and Spirit were all active and given credit in the Exodus events. The New Testament affirms and continues the concept of the Trinity. Jesus, the Son of God, said, But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew three sixteen 16-17 go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit matthew 28 19 jesus ordered them not to depart from jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you heard from me for john baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now acts 1 4 to 5 the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all 2 corinthians 13 14 and there are more examples in the new testament the father is often referred to as god and the son as lord we are not polytheists believing in three gods god is one being one in purpose and essence biblical hebrew points to the mystery of his triunity The Shema is the Jewish prayer and great confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Amen. We agree. The Lord, Yahweh, is one. This passage doesn't contradict our proposition. It affirms it. The Hebrew word used for one is ikad. Ikad is not a numerical one, but in fact a compound one. Yakid is the word used in Scripture for absolute unity. But here in the Shema, not yakid, but ikad is used. Yahweh is one, ikad. As an aside, when it says our God in the Shema, it is in the plural Elohim. In Genesis 1 we read, And there was evening and there was morning, the first Ikkad, day. One Ikkad, day, comprises evening and morning. In the following chapter, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one Ikkad, flesh. The person of the man in unity with the person of the woman become one. Ikad they reflect somewhat the the plurality and the oneness ikad of the Godhead. Ikad is used in reference to Israel, the whole assembly together. Ikad, the ESV has translated ikad as together, and that would make sense. The people of God are ikad. We could say that the body of Christ is. Ichad, multiple persons together in unity as one. Ezekiel was told by God to take two sticks and join them one to another into one stick that they may become one ichad, in your hand. The sticks represented the northern and southern tribes of Israel coming together as a one. The chosen people of God will one day become a Again, multiple chosen people of God join together in unity to form a whole. And the New Testament affirms the oneness of God. There are roles within the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity are equally God, equal in their attributes, yet differ in their relationships within the Godhead and with their creation. The economy of the Trinity, I'll say that again, the economy of the Trinity is the academic term meaning the ordering of activities of the Trinity. Regarding creation, we saw the Father spoke the universe into existence, the Son carried out these decrees, and the Spirit sustaining and manifesting God's presence. Regarding redemption, the Father planned and sent the Son. Uh, the Son responded in obedience to accomplish the work of redemption and the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to apply redemption to us through regeneration, sanctification, empowerment and so forth. We see therefore an economy or order within the Trinity. The Father plans, directs, sends the Son and Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit obeys both the Father and the Son. Uh, The Father, Son and Spirit are equally God, but the Son and Spirit are subordinate in their roles. The theological term is ontological equality, but economic subordination. Grudem simplifies it as equal in being, but subordinate in role. This is key to the doctrine of the Trinity. Ontological equality affirms each person our deity without inferiority while economic subordination affirms the eternal relational roles clearly there is a divine order between the persons of God now those of us who repel submission of any sort must seek the order of the Lord and plead why it does not relate now the word submission has been hijacked of late with a kind of addition of negative connotations attached to it, uh, though the proper meaning is one of good form. Sub meaning under, mission being self-explanatory, uh, signifies that you're you're on the same team, subscribed to the same mission, right? Under the mission of the leader, aiming for the same goal or outcome. The father who has uh, the leadership role within the Trinity spoke, the son worked, His creation and the Spirit's presence sustained. Though equal in deity, importance, and personhood, the Father has authority, and the Son and Spirit submit to His will. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, as well as the eternal distinctions apparent within the creation passages. Scripture also indicates the eternal distinctions with regard to predestination. For example, The Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of his Son. The eternal distinct persons and their respective roles is the very nature of God. His eternal economy cannot be distorted. To understand correctly, we must acknowledge that God the Father is not one-third or partly the being of God and so forth. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, possessing the whole being of God. The persons of God are not different ways of viewing God, but actual distinct persons. There's no difference in being, but rather the relationship and function. The Trinity is a mystery to some degree, And at the same time, we affirm from Scripture the truths that God is three persons, each person is fully God, and God is one being. This is not a contradiction. We are not saying, for example, that God is three persons and God is not three persons, right? It is merely alien to our experience because our daily experience is that of one person means one being, but it doesn't mean that God, who is one being, cannot be three persons. It is spiritually edifying to proclaim what we do understand while being open about what we will never fully comprehend. We have limited but a truthful understanding of God. Now analogies to try and explain the Trinity are often deficient. Um, It should cause humility, worship and surrender. Now on occasion I've seen people who who have been questioned on the topic of the Trinity almost kind of apologize and want to quickly brush past valid questions on the topic Uh, but the doctrine of the Trinity gets to the essence of who he is. We may not fully understand God's ways and his descriptive terms, but it's how he has chosen to reveal himself to man. We don't get carried away with thinking, well, if one's called the father and the other's called the son, that means one must have been born and therefore where is the mother? No, right? These are words to help us comprehend the relationship within the Godhead. All three persons of God who have eternally existed. If the concept of the Trinity is untrue, then who was loving who before creation? Who was God communing with before creation? It makes sense with the concept of a compound unity allowing for plurality in the Godhead. And this, by the way, this isn't a case of flipping Judaism on its head. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. The triunity of the Godhead is Jewish. It's all there in the Hebrew. The New Testament simply expounds on the mysteries of the Old Testament. Jesus the Messiah was and is Jewish. He revealed himself in in, in angelic form in the Old Testament and then humbled himself to come in human form in the New Testament. Now, some churches focus only on only on jesus it's all about jesus you know and it is in that he's the only way to the father by the spirit um, or churches that emphasize the holy spirit above all but a biblical worldview upholds the triune god of father son and spirit God is described in male terms. In fact, all three persons of the Trinity are described in male terms. Now, our Creator is completely desexualized. Hamilton says sexual identity and sexual function are foreign to God's person. He's not a man or a woman as we understand humans, but is depicted in male terms. Explaining the Hebrew choice of word, Orthodox Jew Dennis Prager explains... The verb created in the first verse of the Torah is in the masculine and in the singular, so we immediately know there is not more than one God and there is no Goddess. Now he may not recognise the three persons in one being, but his point stands. God is relational and rather than have a relationship with a thing or an it he chose to relate to us in male form in a growing genderless society we must remember that god has intentionally revealed himself in male terms and he wishes us to respond to him in such terms and for good reason firstly male terms can cover all people of both genders for example man or mankind and so forth secondly many find this general truth controversial but men as in the human race both male and female follow men men follow men in fact males are much more likely to follow men mainly because of their design which we will look at soon enough but also because we instinctively know God is self-described in male terms. So because of this relational instinct whereby our ultimate authority and creator who provides, gives rules, judges, and is masculine, there is a better chance that we will listen, which is why the Bible is written entirely by men, predominantly to men. Now, this can be offensive in today's world. Do not misunderstand my point. As we've understood, men are in no way of more value to God than women. The Bible is for both men and women to read and study. But God has order to his plan and he knows the best way to steer his own creation to good rather than bad. The evidence of men being the primary perpetrators of violence and chaos is overwhelming. They make up 95% of inmates in UK prisons. The lifelong effects on children of a fatherless home is well documented. Middle-aged men in the UK are more likely to die from suicide than anything else. Therefore, if God can steer the men, he can steer humanity. After all, the potter can choose what he does with the clay. Law and order is foundational of any civil society, and it's the men who are more likely to require rules. The Bible describes God as a warrior and yet also loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and in total control, demonstrating these are also male traits that men can identify with, and still an authority to which they are accountable. Those who do not have an earthly father, can relate to their heavenly father of the fatherless. Having a heavenly father, then, is an immensely powerful reality that transforms societies for good. For this reason, the parable of the prodigal son is so powerful. A patient father waiting to embrace his son upon return. And Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh, is the model Son for us all. God is first described in the Old Testament as the Father of Israel. Is not he your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Israel is described as God's child and firstborn son. Jesus told his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven. It should astound us that we can have a relationship with our heavenly father who beholds all the attributes aforementioned the father of truth and he is fatherly in his attributes to all men he sustains humanity in a fatherly way life is a gift from the father but it is only through the son do we come to know the father as an additional thought the son the second person of the trinity came to live as a male human named Jesus and Jesus necessarily had to be male be sacrificed on the cross as male resurrected as a male and will return as a human male fully God a fully male man The modern era has seen an exponential attack on the word of God, with identity and order centre focus. Addressing feminism, Albert Muller Jr. says, Feminist theologians, for example, reject naming God as father. Feminists see the title father as evidence of ancient and repressive patriarchism. To clarify the biblical position, Boller continues, To say that God is Father is not to say that God has a gender. We simply speak as the Bible speaks. We affirm God is Father, Son and Spirit. That affirmation does not imply that God has a gender as in the same way as his human creatures. His masculine pronouns emphasize his personal nature in contrast to impersonal entities. Feminists attempt to manipulate the male titles, and cults attempt to see things that are simply not there. The son of God was not begat, nor does it mean there is a mother God. Objecting to the exclusive male terms is the beginning of rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity. It is a form of postmodern pop spirituality which has little to do with historic Christianity and biblical teaching, says Moller. And he concludes to tamper with this is not merely to be creative in worship, it is to create a false God. We have no right to petition for change. Such is the importance of accurate terms of God. Historic Christian creeds, such as the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, begin with belief in the Father Almighty. We should refer to God in whichever way he has decided. That wraps up today's teaching on the Order of God, a personal God of many attributes described in male terms, three in one, with ontological equality and economic subordination, truly worthy of worship. Now if you've got this far, I trust that you can see that taking time out to study who God is and and why doctrines within theology proper matter, we discover more about who it is that we worship and we guard from making our own version of God. Now next we will turn to the order of the universe, the stage or the field of play and then the order of the characters or players within the biblical worldview. So stay tuned for uh, descriptions of God's heavenly throne at the real location of hell and much more. If this has been a blessing, please like, subscribe, share it with friends and have a blessed week.